right, welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I just looked at I oh the sign. Yeah, the on air sign. I just looked down at my notes when I said that and all I saw was it says I am heterosexual. So we'll, We'll get, we'll get I feel to, a lot more comfortable saying that. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. But um, welcome to uh, our, our wonderful um, our, welcome our wonderful studio audience, and we have another great panel here tonight. Uh, why don't we introduce them? Uh, first of all, um, we have a couple. Yes, uh, I'm trying to think of how many couples we've had on. I was going to say we haven't had any, but then I remembered that I used to do this podcast with my wife. <laughs> so uh, there's been at least one. Um, so we have D. Yes. D, welcome. Yes. Thank you. And now you 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 were a bishop. Yep. Or yeah. Uh, about I would say about three years ago. Uh, no. Yeah, yeah. About three years ago, I was a bishop and down in Utah County. A little over five. I years. brought my official. It's legit. We brought sign. this certificate. You do. You still have it framed. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. Bit, you put that out so people know you have the authority. It's been living under the bed. Yeah. Yeah. So, Excellent. Yeah. Um, we try not to let the children see it. I have my resignation letter framed. Um, oh, that's a great idea. But you could do a double. The, you yeah. know, the reason oh, I have it... Oh, side by side. The reason I have it framed is it's when really you get sad. divorced, you suddenly have a lot of frames without <laughs> anything in them. <laughs> so, well, that's, just, that's just sad. Um, and, um, and D, your wife, Natalie, welcome yep. to yes. you also. Thank you. Now, you just recorded a Voices interview, I right? I did, with Katrine, and she's delightful. She is. She is an amazing person. Yep. Um, and she's doing a fabulous job. number 60. Yeah. Oh, wow. And it's, she's already published it, so. Oh, so it's, it's, it's out, out there. there. It's out there. Excellent. Well, welcome. And you'll be representing the, um, the um, view of the bishop's wife. Such a good job. All right. Okay. Yep. And uh, we also have Philip. Hey, Philip. Hey, how you doing? I am wonderful. Now, you've been a bishop and served on bishoprics for a lot of years. Yes. Unfortunately, uh, in the pre-existence, I was obviously a bad boy. <laughs> so I got the opportunity to serve on three bishoprics and serve as a bishop for six years. Wow. Well, welcome. And, um, um, and we need to get you guys both on to Voices. You have a, a fascinating story. <laughs> and we need to... Um, we need to um, tease that out. And I, of course, am an angry bishop's son, um, which should be obvious. I've been playing that out for five I years didn't now. I that. That's, that's sad um, and awesome. <laughs> it's, it's too bad. But, you know, I was, I was rebellious, but not in any of the good ways. You know, like, I didn't get any sex or alcohol. I was rebelling other ways. So um, I didn't have the, the fun type of rebellion. And we'll get into that. But speaking of heterosexuals, let's talk about the news. Um, we have several stories. The church just this week announced they're going to reopen the Ogden Temple. Now, those who have been in the, in the um, church for a while, the Ogden and Provo temples were opened in 1972, and they are butt ugly. <laughs> they, um, they look like a big upside-down thumbtack. Were they always thought of as ugly? I mean, in the 70s, did people say this is ugly? I don't know if anyone is of that age around here. They, they, they've always had the problem that no one ever wanted to get married, married in them. I guess that's I think the that's, sign. that's always been the, the, the issue. Um, I thought vintage was back in style. Let's just stick this out <laughs> for a little bit longer. I don't know why they're doing that. For those who haven't seen, now when I, when, I was, when I was a kid, they gave me a book of remembrance when I got baptized. and had all the temples embossed in gold on that pleather. Um, uh, whatever, it is, whatever it was. And, and they had those two temples. They're, they are done from the same blueprints. They're, they're um, pretty well exact, um, the Provo and the Ogden Temple. 
And the Ogden Temple, so Ogden is the armpit of Utah, right? And the Ogden Temple sits in the armpit of the armpit of, it's, it's, not, in a very, it's not in a very great place. Um, and the church for the past 10 or 15 years has been trying to revitalize. They built a bunch of condos and they were trying to sort of get it out of the, 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 the slums. And as when they opened Bountiful Temple, at that point, like people just stopped going to, to the, the Ogden Temple, is what I'm told. Now, the Ogden Temple, I've been told over and over again, I don't know if it's true, I've never looked it up, is supposed to be a sort of representative, representative motif of the pillar uh, that um, the children of Israel followed in um, Sinai. Um, so it's got um, sort of an art deco-y... Um, steeple and then it's a big round white thing with gold glass and i would think that would be the eternity you know we we love our rings we love our circles it's you never knew where you were actually when you got inside yeah, that's there. true because you would it's, come out and you'd go through the little you right. get to the name you take the escalators the and, escalator yeah that was and you wild. couldn't actually see out the, because it's all glass windows you'd think you'd have this great view but you you can't you can't see when you're in there so and, no. then, and then all the the, the celestial room is in the middle, so all the all the rooms um, kind of poke in the middle. So you're not exactly clear where you're where you're at when you're in there. But what they did is they have this sort of mick temple-y design that they've been using for the past. And I am told I'm I'm not an architect, but I am told they're basically just dropped this facade right on top of the outside of the Ogden Temple. That if you went in, it would still be the round <laughs> walk thing, but from the outside, it looks like the Bountiful Temple. But I also heard that they found out that it was structurally messed up, and I think they redid it. Is yeah, what evidence do I have? Well, about? that's I, I read the I read the announcement by the church, and they said, "Oh yeah, well, it's full of electrical problems and all these other things." Yeah. that we had to we had to really redesign it, which begs the question. It's twin brothers sitting down in Provo, right. right? And they're not touching that thing, right? So um, if there's anything wrong with this one, you would think that they would be wrong with the other well, one. Well, here's the scoop I had. I talked with a, a temple architect, and he said that the reason that they did it was the day after the architect died is how, hey, who knows if it was the day after, was when they decided to put that plan together huh. and redo it. Didn't want to hurt his feelings. That, that, that could be. But the Provo one is still up and cranking away, and there, there you go. The, the, the two sit in comparison. The temple will be opened in September. I'm sorry. How do you know the temple architect? <laughs> he was do a bishop, remember? Oh, I sorry. Mean, sorry. He would, was you a bishop. Li- would you like that answer, my wife? <laughs> do bishops know these things? Everything. Everything. John, you know, though, why they uh, don't need to do anything with the Provo Temple, because that's dedicated to the MTC now, and those suckers have to go to that ugly temple. They don't really have a choice. That's so, so true. So they probably aren't going to touch it, because why put any money in a the temple that nobody yeah. else goes to? Well, the, I also understand that the two temples, they have, most temples have four um, endowment rooms, and the Ogden and Provo have six. Um, uh, and I think a temple session in the room takes a little bit over two hours, um, so they can basically start a session every 20 minutes at those temples. So they're, they're high-volume temples. Um, and the, I was told back when I was at BYU that the Provo Temple does the same volume as the rest of the Utah temples all put together. Um, and part of that is because they make the missionaries go once a week, so they all kind of trudge over there and go, go hit a session. Um, 
Our next, our next um, item of news happened at BYU, actually. Um, BYU is trying to um, stomp out the gay, and um, <laughs> apparently they had some kind of survey, and this has now hit the national news. It's all over the place. Screenshots and everything. Oh, the internet. <laughs> um, they had a survey question. Survey question number eight said, have, gave you two choices. I am heterosexual but struggling with same-sex attraction, or I am heterosexual and do not struggle with same-sex attraction, or other, please specify. So the only two choices, you could be a, you could be a gay heterosexual or, or a straight heterosexual, <laughs> according to, 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 to BYU. And I love that they, they actually did release, they had a press release um, after they went and changed, when they were outed, they, they, they changed the text. And um, they said, to better convey the intent of the question. Um, I think they, they conveyed their intent pretty, pretty well. I mean, they telegraphed it, right? You know, you're, you're heterosexual, right? Right? You're, you're, you're heterosexual? Um, and so, so now they ask, do you experience same-sex attraction? Notice they just can't acknowledge that homosexuality exists. But, but why would you even want to answer that going to BYU? I... I I just, yeah, okay, it's anonymous or whatever. I just, taking the risk of even saying what you are down there doesn't seem like something I would say, yeah, sign me up. Uh, well, ex- exactly. I mean, what interest do you have? And, and in, in the, the church's statement was, the survey is part of the church's broader research to understand the attitudes and opinions of millennials. And I know I've said it quite a few times in the last few weeks, the, the the church is run by a bunch of idiots, and this is one of the reasons. And it's partly because they surround themselves with this sort of stuff. They want to understand the attitude and opinions of the millennials, but they cannot even write the question in such a way that's not completely leading, in, su- in such a way that a ninth grader would be able to say, that's a leading question right there. Um, but I thought that's what inspiration is for, too. <laughs> I mean, really, shouldn't God be telling you how to run God's church and God's institution of higher learning well this has always been the question the church has been um, hiring high-priced you know madison avenue uh advertising firms for a lot of years and you know the question is well why (laughs) don't 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 you have like that special room in the temple (laughs) Uh, but um yeah this is this says it's still going to be a long time before the church i mean Honestly, they, they really can't even acknowledge that homosexuality is a thing. They can't even bear to ask the question, are you a homosexual? Um, and, you know, what the, the real irony is this is, a, this is a university. Like, every other university would say, like, you suck cock or something like that. Would, they can't even, they can't even uh, at least that's what the videos that I buy on from about the... Anyway. Um, <laughs> So in another story, this is a little bit of an old story. Speaking of Provo, um, the Gallup poll released uh, er, earlier, at the end end of March actually, uh, released a poll on well-being. They said Provo is the city with the number one well-being in the United States. Wow, Provo. But you and I have been there, right? We've all been there. So I was a little suspicious. Um, So I wanted to see what they define as well-being, of course, the, the, the Gallup poll. And they, their words are, we examine Americans' perceptions, perceptions, let's come back to that, on topics such as physical and emotional health, healthy behaviors, work environments, social and community factors, financial security, and access to necessities such as food. Um, uh, so, so 
the five main things that the Gallup poll published were obesity, exercise, smoking, daily exercise, whether or not you're insured. Okay. So what's funny is smoking. They rate the quality of life by the percentage of people in the city who smoke. Okay, my quality of living is not taken down one bit by the fact the guys down the street smoke. Um, and, and, and they don't even make a distinction. Like smoking a, smoking a cigar is, is going to, you know, with, with a nice snifter of brandy. That's what the cool cats <laughs> that's do. That's well-being they're, they're defined happy. right there, right? You know, you yeah, have an ascot. You have your brandy. <laughs> you have a cigar. This is well-being, right? And, and the, the Gallup poll does not even acknowledge that. I'm just I'm flabbergasted. And, of course, fatties, I guess fatties down in Utah County would, would lower the, the, the um, quality of life. And then daily stress was one of their things. So, I, and the fruits and vegetables. You had to eat, eat at least four or five servings of fruits and vegetables. So I'm just saying, um, the reason I included this story is when I was a member, every time something like this came out, we would parade it out and dance yeah. it around as evidence that we were the one true church, right? This, there are people who are framing this on their bedroom wall and saying, see, when is the world going to see? Provo's the best city to live in. Um, yeah, well, maybe not so much. But once you start moving around and living in other areas, you start to see that every city fits something. Everybody gets a certain award, and, and uh, you know, some of those towns obviously are party schools and things like that. They wear that as a badge. Uh, but it is funny how, yeah, we always did that. I mean, it's just like saying who's a celebrity, who, who is uh, a band member right, is right. the hip thing to say now. Yeah, Ricky Schroeder is a Mormon. It's, therefore, it's true. Okay. <laughs> um, didn't he bear his ass on that one TV show? Uh, uh, Lonesome? Not Lonesome. Oh, oh yeah, and, yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah, and NYPD Blue. Blue. Yeah, yeah. Oh my, how even the very elect will be deceived in the last day. <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, there, that's our. But but when I looked at the questions, now you had to pay to get the poll, and I just wasn't interested enough. But it was clear from everything Gallup poll wrote that they were self-answering questions, and it was on the perception of well-being. And I think for those of us who are, even when we were faithful Mormons in the state, like a lot of Utahns don't really like the Provo, Utah County um, folks that much. But I I think that's key. Um, I I think Jonathan Haidt has written about this quite a bit. He's the one who wrote The Happiness Hypothesis, that, that he basically says religious people, especially fundamentalists, will poll happier. They will say they're happier because they think they are. Then the philosophical question is, does it, does it matter that they don't? I mean, is, is there any abstract? If you're told, if you're in a religion that tells you that you're happy and you then self-report as being happy, does it matter? <laughs> I mean, is that, is that all it takes? You know, Because um, the placebo effect is fascinating and real and oftentimes more statistically significant than the effect of medicine itself. And the more we study the placebo effect, the more fascinating it is that it still works even if you know it's a placebo, right? It still works. Um, So what a theory of religion that's popping around in my head lately is Religion is just sort of, we discovered 10,000 years ago the placebo effect, and we, we put it into cathedrals and churches. And does it work? Seems to. Are the people in Provo, do they have a better quality of life? Not according to me, but they think they do, so voila, they do. Okay. Who came in second? Um, I, I, don't, I don't remember. 
<laughs> seconds for losers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's our that's our news for for the week. Um, we've been talking recently about a lot of the effects of the church, kind of on psyche and on culture, and bishops take a lot of um, heat from ex-Mormons and the like because bishops screw up quite a bit. Statistically, I am actually quite amazed how little they do screw up, that is. And, and we're going to talk about tonight sort of the, the pressures uh, on, on a bishop and, and what they're expected to do. Now, I was going to, a couple weeks ago, we had the everything that's expected of, of, a, of a Mormon. And I was going to do the same thing with the bishops, but frankly, that left me so demoralized after it that was, last podcast that, that um, we really don't have enough time for all that, do we? No, the, 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 for everything we went through with, with, a, with a standard member, the bishops just have tons and tons and tons of things. The number of meetings alone and the number of tasks and asks in that bishop handbook are just Amazing. Now, I, I did serve as a ward clerk for a while, so I got to watch it happen. But I, I, do, I do know my, my father was ordained to be a bishop when I believe right after I turned 14. And I think he was released, I was on my mission when, he, when I was 20. So he served about six years. And his schedule was that he would get up at um, 5.30 on Sunday, and he'd be at the church at about 6.30 he would come home at noon to eat, and then he'd go back, and he'd be there to about 10.30. That was Sunday. Monday, he would be with us, but Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, he would come home from work, eat, and then go to the church and be there till about 11 o'clock every night. And then oftentimes, Saturday, there was something going on. There was some activity or something he was supposed to be to. But he was basically spending about 30 hours a week, by my recollection, um, in, in the bishop's office. I feel lazy compared to that. I, I think in the beginning I was uh, jumping in like really excited. Like let's, and you feel compelled. Like we have to have meetings. Um, so let's meet this night and this night. We'll meet and talk with people. Then we have to go out and do visits. Uh, I feel like I got a lot lazier as time went, but maybe that was just me not feeling competent enough. But um, I, I did back off on it um, so that I wasn't, there was always something you could do, though. I don't know what it would be like for Philip, though. Where you're, well, yeah. For for me, the first bishopric I served on was with a bishop who served for seven years, and during that seven years was unemployed. So he oh, wow. devoted every minute of his life to to being a bishop. So to follow him, um, yeah, somebody that had that amount of time to dedicate to it was was very difficult. But um, at the time. Um, and I only realized that when I left the church, I ran it like I was running my business because I run businesses. And so although I thought I was doing it for the Lord, that I was putting the time in for him, what I did was I just modeled what I did in my everyday life and delegated just about everything I could. So the amount of time I spent was nowhere near as much as, as your father did yeah. doing that. But the, I, I, think, I think it's key that you're pointing out you, you, it was it was work, and you were bringing this expertise in. You knew how to run a business, yes, right? Because yes. that's basically what you're doing. You are running a business of, sure. you know, an average you ward is budget and five hundred, six hundred people, one hundred fifty to three hundred who attend regularly, right? That that that's that's on on average, and you've got a lot of stuff you have to do, Charles. 
So the question that I was just going to ask, judging from your accent, you're probably not here from the States. Um, your first bishop that you worked with was unemployed. Where are you from? Because mostly here in the States, your bishops are going to be the very successful, uh, you know, already kind of business type people, at least from what I've seen. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I'm from the UK. Uh, so in the UK, there is a social system there that allows people to be unemployed for forever, if they wish. Um, so they, they, they get basic needs met, you know, housing and food and clothing and that kind of thing. So uh, for him, his commitment to the Lord was so great that he felt <laughs> that he, didn't, he shouldn't be looking for work, that he should be 100% dedicated to, to the work he was doing for the Lord in the church. So um, during that time, he never even looked for work. Um, you know, it, the system in the UK means that every so often he has to go in and report that he's been looking for jobs, and I, 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 I don't know whether he did that or not, but that's all that's required. Um, and then he just gets, um, gets that sub- subsistence, if you like, to live off and provide for his family. But, yeah, it's, um, it's not something that would be readily available here in the US to be able to do it that way. But they do ask you, uh, they do like a soft interview. I don't know if that was the case in yours, but the stake president called me. I don't know if he was talking to other people. He said he was. Mm. Oh, you know, trying to be nonchalant. You know, we're looking at a calling, and and uh, how's your job? Is it solid? How long have you been there? And and uh, what did you do for school? And, and just kind of a kind of a job interview to see if, you were self-sufficient, and they weren't going to have to, I, I don't know, pay, uh, give you some food at the, at the bishop's storehouse. Yeah, yeah, my interview was the same. It lasted yeah. about 15 minutes. Yeah, about that, My yeah. wife got invited in to raise her arm to the square and be 100% behind me, supporting everything I had to do, and she would do whatever it took for me to be the best bishop ever. So that, that was her commitment to this as well. But um, <laughs> they required both of us. As I'm sure it was, right? Yeah, you they want wife. you both to sign off. You on both that. got to sign on the line for this, yeah. yeah, yeah. Totally. So, so we can fully understand what the bishops do. Let's go back in time now and let's talk about where this came about and and um, um, how it evolved to the mess that it is today. <laughs> the first bishop was Edward Partridge, and he was um, installed as a bishop in 1831. Um, and the bishop's office at that point in the church was very much separated from the ecclesiastical offices. Now, it's sort of an appendage, but when we think about a bishop, we really think about a pastor um, in, in, the, in the Mormon church. That's the function and role they're playing. And that was not the way it was in, in the beginning of the church. In the beginning of the church, the bishop was in charge of all the temporal affairs. Now, remember, they were starting quasi-socialistic systems in which um, everything was communal to some degree or the other. And they, they kept futzing around with that for years and years and changing how they did it. But the bishop was really in, in charge of that system. So Partridge was first appointed um, in Kirtland, and then he relocated down to Missouri. And in Missouri, um, they were trying to send all the, the, the people who kind of had their shit together a little bit, but then all of the New York um, contingency sold their houses, kind of sold, and they, they took a huge loss, and they moved down in mass. So suddenly there was this big group of people who were expecting to come and live off the um, 
suckle off the sweet teat of the church in Zion. And, um, and Partridge was just overwhelmed. The, the letters he's sending back, he's like, you know, it sounded like Scotty down in the engine room. He, he, <laughs> he was really looking for some assistance. And, but he was not really um, doing the, the ecclesiastical, like any kind of interviews for morality or stuff. That was not happening at all. If you boffed somebody's wife, you got outed in the priesthood meeting, and then you got excommunicated, and 10 days later they brought you back in the church. That was the, that was the model back then. Um, so, so, so Partridge w- was, was there, and then, um, this, the, then they split the bishop. So, so there was one in Kirtland, and there was one in, in Nauvoo, but... The evolution of the bishop's office was kind of strange. There was a presiding bishop, and then um, and then there were second bishops. But it's, it's it's not exactly clear. But they were really in charge of the temporal affairs, and that meant doling out property, collecting things into the bishop's storehouse, and all that sort of stuff. And the bishop's storehouse, in, especially in Missouri, during the later period when, when we were there the second time, this is where all the bounty and loot from the raids was dropped off. So you'd have like saddles and guns and horses and all sorts of shit like that that the bishop had to, had to sort of manage. Um, we then go to um, Nauvoo, where um, Vincent Knight um, um, was appointed to be the, the, the bishop pro tem of the church. And I think he was the bishop of the lower ward. And this is where the term ward first comes in, in Nauvoo, because they were, they were breaking up um, the, the land. Now, Joseph Smith and those guys were, were heavy-duty land speculators. And they were looking to both enrich the church and enrich themselves by, um, by land speculation. And, and if, you, if you know a little bit about church history in Nauvoo, one of the things that blew things up is Smith had a bunch of property on the upper, in the upper ward, and the church had a bunch of property in the lower ward, and Smith started pushing people to his property instead of the church's property, and it caused all sorts of drama um, um, as, as things um, unfolded. So, so there were the bishops of, of these wards, and eventually there were three wards in Nauvoo. And that was sort of the first evolution. But the, the ward, it's still kind of used that way. It, it, was a, it was a geographical boundary. This was not ecclesiastical. Your ecclesiastical leadership went another route. So when they, when they moved out to Salt Lake, they actually divided everything out into, um, I, I think there were 15 wards in the Salt Lake Valley. And they're still remnant. The 13th and 14th wards um, were the wards that were right in the downtown area. And if you go over to the DUP Museum, they used to actually sell these. I went back a year or two ago looking for them. They don't have them. They have the, map, the ward map, and then they have all the plots. And those guys just divided everything out. So, so the original 12 got wealthy in the first 20 years because they just owned all the property. So everybody who came in after the original would have to buy their property from the, from the 12. But so, so, so that control from the 13th and 14th wards, you can see this sort of evolution and that first stake president and, and all that kind of stuff. But this, w- this was all um, temporal. And, but that, but I, don't, I, don't, I, I need to emphasize that that connection between the two was really powerful because you were expected to, to grant everything you had. The concept of a chapel being associated with a ward house didn't come about for about 50 years after, after the church was, was here. The, the way in the, in, the, in the first 30 or 40 years when people were in Utah, the way they went to meetings is they had tabernacles. 
And they didn't even go every Sunday. They would just come every once in a while. So if you look at the old towns, you won't see chapels dating from 1850, but you'll see tabernacles dating from, from that. And, and everybody in the stake would come. So the idea of a ward meeting, um, sort of as a congregation, w- was somewhere around the turn of the century when that started coming in, into play. That, that, so, so the bishop as a pastor or as an as a ecclesiastical leader locally was something that developed slowly over time. And I don't know enough about the slow evolution of that. But really your stake president would have functioned more in, in that role. Randy? Actually hearing some of this history makes things make more sense. Um, <clears throat> my grandfather ran the bishop's storehouse that is down in Spanish Fork today from sometime in the late 60s, early 70s, up until he retired in the late 90s. And I always wondered why he ran the bishop's storehouse, but he wasn't a bishop. But he didn't only just run that one. He ran everything from Spanish Fork south to the state line, pretty much. So the fact that the bishop's storehouse kind of predates the bishop as an ecclesiastical endorsement actually makes that make more sense in some ways. Right. So where, whenever you want to find power, follow the money. So bishops control the tithing. So that gave them a huge amount of control, and they basically functioned as, as de facto mayors because they controlled the partitioning of all the property and all the rights to. Because so the church would go into a settlement. They would control the water rights and the timber rights and the mineral rights. And if you wanted to go chop down some trees, you had to go talk to the to local um, the bishops. And these guys were Westerners. You know, if you went and started poaching um, cottonwood trees, you know, you, you could lose a testicle or something. So they, 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 weren't, they weren't screwing around back then. Um, so as, as this office grows, it grows out of that management of people's temporal affairs involved in, 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 um, involved in the day-to-day interaction of the people. As a matter of fact, it wasn't even until that there are still recorded instances, I think up into like the 20s and 30s, where people basically taking civil matters in Utah to the church courts which were governed by the bishops. Since the bishops sort of controlled all this stuff, they controlled basically the entire um, court system. And if you read um, early on as, the, as Utah territory is looking for recognition from the, from the federal government, this is one of the arguments they're going back and forth on. They want that separation of church and state. But since everybody is sort of beholden to the, to the bishop, especially in southern Utah where they were really into the United Order, more so than in Salt Lake and in Ogden and some of the northern settlements, that became more and more of an issue. So, so that has a lot of this, this influence. And as, as, we, as we get past like World War I, World War II, we start seeing this merging of spiritual affairs and temporal affairs, where it's not just a matter of paying tithing. Um, and it's not just a matter of identity. You know, because as you can see from church history, pe- you had people like Wild Bill Hickman and, and, and these guys that, you know, were were whoring, drinking, murdering people, and no one would question their Mormon identity as long as they self-identified as a Mormon. And that's the way the frontier was, that you might be considered a bad dude, but no one would ever say you weren't a Mormon. The, what you got excommunicated for was basically disloyalty. Now, the problem is if you go boff somebody's wife um, or somebody's husband, we want to be equal opportunity here, right? <laughs> um, then you're messing with the social order. So I will grant an exception for, for that, because, but I, I would contend it's not about you know, where you're sticking your whatever. It's, it's, about, it's about that you're messing with the, 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 the way things work smoothly. And it wasn't until like the mid-20th century we start getting this 
it starts all bleeding in and we start really worrying about what everybody's doing, what everybody's thinking, what everybody's wearing. I think even for up until the 60s, 50s, the idea of a dress code in Mormonism would have just baffled people. I mean, they, all, they all had to wear their big garments with the, the collars and the, the, to the ankles and to the wrists. But other than that, like nobody, nobody cared. Um, so, 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 so that was a new thing. So all this pressure on the bishops that they take with them from governing the ins and outs and little nitty-bitty things of everybody's life sort of evolves into that office. And then we start pushing all this ecclesiastical stuff on top of them. And, and so as a bishop, you're in charge of the welfare. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, which means anybody can come to you at any time asking for money, asking for food, asking for assistance with their kids, with their spouse, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and that's a tough thing, especially if in my situation I hadn't had pre- prior to that. Uh, I didn't run a business. Maybe on your end somebody would be asking for an advance or something like that. For me, it was new uh, when somebody came and said they, they needed help. So, uh, But there's really – this goes back to one of my main uh, difficulties with, with the time I served was that you're not really trained in anything. They handed us a blue book. And my wife read it in the car while we drove up to, uh, to my family at one point, and she kind of read through it, and I read through it. And that was about the extent of training for how to give out money or how to decide these things. And, and stake training meetings after that always seemed to be more like we're not doing our job to get these whatever number we're going to talk about up. So that's, that's a... a beef I had is that you're, you're given all this responsibility of management, um, but there's, there's nobody walking you through it, really. Yeah, yeah, that, and I think that's a huge issue, and I, I, want to, I, I want to hit on that some more, but I mean, let's outline the things that you're not sure. trying to do. <laughs> you, you, you have all this fiscal responsibility for, for the ward and for the, the member, and you're not giving any training. You're not giving any financial training. You're not, you're not trained how to read budgets. You're not trained how to do, do any of that stuff. You have to control the complete infrastructure of the ward, which is, you know, you're, you're talking about a, a medium-sized company here, uh, 150 positions and all the personnel issues that come with that, people leaving, people not showing up, transferring people from one job to the other, determining who's going to be the best to serve in this role, and if there's problems that aren't being followed through, ultimately the buck stops with, with, stops with you. And, and also remembering people aren't getting paid to w- do this work either. Right. So there are, there are sometimes big kickbacks from folks who just don't believe that they should be doing that particular calling. You know. They, they've prayed about it, and the bishop's wrong. You've prayed about it, and you're wrong. So uh, we're a bit of a stalemate in, in terms of who's going to do this freaking job, you know? <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, and, and, I mean, that's hard enough in a company. We can just say, because I said so. I guess, you know, as a bishop, you can say, because God said so. But then, then the people can come back and say, no, he didn't. That's the thing. The power of, of an employer is, well, you can do this job, or you can go and find another job. You're fired. Right. Uh, we don't fire people in the church. We just move them around as God dictates we should move them around. And sometimes folks just don't want to be moved around. And they take exception when they're moved around as well because, did I fuck up on this? Is that mm-hmm. why I'm being moved? You know, that's the kind of attitude you get from some people. And others say, well, whoever replaces me is never going to be as good as I am. So you should just leave me there. And God's told me I should be doing this for at least the next 10 years as well. You have those issues to deal with as well. So those two things we've outlined so far take up a lot of the meeting schedule of a bishop. 
they'll be doing the, the, the PEC, the leadership meetings, the welfare meetings, all, all these things where they're constantly meeting with, with, these, with these folks who also have not been trained. So the bishop is basically responsible to train everybody on how to do their job because there's not even a carryover. It's, it, it's not like, here's Sister Smith. She was the Relief Society president for seven years, and she's going to serve as interim Relief Society president the next three months as she trains you know, Sister Jones. No, no, the one leaves and the other one comes in, and it's a, it's a fresh start. <laughs> Um, so, so we have those two areas, the temporal and then the administrative. Now we have, D, as you were hinting at, you get these things from the, the stake presidents and from the higher-ups asking for where are your baptisms, where is your growth, where is your fiscal, you know, where is your income um, based on tithing receipts. Yeah, your fast offerings seem to be down a bit. Yeah. You can, can you tell me a little bit about that, what, what you think might be the issue there? Right, and, and you brought up a really good point that, that, that Sorry, I was going sir. to underline, which is every training I've ever been in the church from a leadership perspective is always done in the negative. They always have a leadership training on what you're fucking up, right? They don't say, okay, hey, we realize that a lot of you may not know how to read financials. So here we're going to go through, and it's, it's always a brethren, you know. <laughs> We've been praying about this, and there's you know something wrong. So it's it's always this emphasis on you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, and that's coupled with the idea that if you had only been praying, or if you'd only been righteous, or you'd only been doing what you're supposed to, then it would have just worked out. It would have just naturally worked out. So so now we talked about those three responsibilities on the bishop. The, the, again, the administration, the temporal um, administration of the, all the people, and then the um, keeping your bosses happy. Now we have the social work element, um, which is you're set up to fail. So you ask people these questions. You know, are you getting along with your spouse? And for a lot of people they say, no. <laughs> Holy shit, now what, right? Because this is, this is really the scary thing, and this is what give my, my, my heart bleeds for all these bishops. They have no idea what to do at this point, honestly. This is the scariest thing about the church for, for me today, um, really, is, is uh, I believe, for the most part, the bishops are well-intended. Yeah, and, and I think that you're always told that you'll be given the answer. Absolutely. Th- this yeah. is your job, and, and so you'll be given it in the very moment, the very the, hour that you need the it. inspiration. So I, I walk in my first Sunday... And here's this couple that's been married a lot longer than I have, dealing with issues I've never dealt before, and they're expecting me to make a decision. And I'm <laughs> scrambling, well, the answer's going to come, the answer's going to come, and, and eventually you, you start to think that the answers are coming. And I could have been giving the worst advice possible. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure I did give yeah. lots of crap advice to people, but... Well, it seemed good at the time. Yeah, sure. Right? And you, you don't know They make better. you feel good. They're like, yes, Bishop, that sounds wonderful. Well, and I, I know there's couples, I've known couples that do this, that whenever a new bishop comes in, it's fresh meat. Because they're looking oh, for somebody man. to side with them, right? Yes. This couple's been going at it for that, that 27 fucking years, me. and now we have somebody else who can tip the scale. <laughs> well, right? that and the men who didn't want to tell the bishop that they masturbated. So it's <sighs> like... 
I don't know this guy. He's, he's new. To, I think I can tell him and check that off. Well, we were talking before. The, I like the, to talk about masturbation. Well, we all, we all talk, talk and do. I can't stop myself. <laughs> we were talking before the podcast about, oh, well, is, isn't it, you know, the bishops just spend all their time dealing with, with masturbation and pornography. I think most experienced bishops would say, if only. Because I think I read. Yeah, that's true. I, yeah, it, 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 would, it would be a, nice if that was it. It's a small part of it. It really is a small part of the whole Maybe on a, maybe on a like a like a college ward, then it's totally like masturbation and <laughs> and boobs. But because um, they're not dealing with the welfare issues mm. that you are, but but those yeah they far outweighed and they were a lot less fun. So a, a bishop. <laughs> well, I'm not saying those were fun. Mormon Expression is a listener funded program. If you like what you hear, please visit us at mormonexpression.com and consider becoming a subscribing member. While you're there, let us know what you think about the show. A bishop is going to be dealing with infidelity um, yeah. quite a bit. I think I read a few years ago that on average, the standard bishop is dealing with three cases of infidelity at any given time. Um, the, a bishop is going to be dealing with fraud, criminal cr- people who are involved in criminal behavior. A bishop is going to be dealing with domestic violence in ways that... Uh, so a couple comes and insinuates that there's domestic violence going on. The bishop has no training, no criminal training, no, no nothing. Now they have a hotline. And this has been after like 15, 20 years of a lot of pressure on the church. But they still don't train the bishops. I mean, let's think about this. They do not fly new bishops down to Salt Lake for a 72-hour, one-week course. In, you think about any job you take, you're going to go through corporate training, even on the briefest thing saying, this is sexual harassment. Well, they think, it's, they think it's good enough to prepare missionaries to go out and share the gospel and, and to do it properly and, and to share the good news. But, yeah, it, it's, you kind of feel left out. Well, I mean, McDonald's you, you get training, I assume, well, as a manager. But we, we do get the blue book. It's the a blue good book, book and the red book. It's, Everybody else gets everything. the red book, but we yeah. get the blue one as well. So, you know, everything we need to know is in the blue book. It has that phone number that you call. I would pray, please, do not tell me that you that you abuse someone because it's like oh, then I got to call that number and uh, I, I, as a bishop it felt good because it was like at least it was it was like oh I have a, lo- a lawyer on retainer Kirk and McConkie come help me out <laughs> but that, that was a good thing and I'm with you I'm glad that they do that now but it would be helpful to have a little bit more training on, on that very important area when somebody comes to you and tells them some, you some bad things have happened. See, in my day, that wasn't in the book. So in the book, all I had was the, well, just scribbled in the back, was the state president's phone number because he's the higher authority for anything like that. So I think things have improved. So I, honest to God, 30, 20, 30 years ago, a woman came with a black eye. And the bishop would have called the, 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 the fella in and told him to pray more. And they would have told him, they would have discouraged them from reporting that. I think now there's progress. The, don't get me wrong, this still happens. But I think now there's progress. The, the, the bishops yeah. kind of know from watching the 5 o'clock news that they're kind of their asses on the line on those things. Um, but I think it's still the case where, there's this, where there is insinuation or apparent psychological abuse. Or people who are in um, abusive relationships or that are not healthy 
and the bishops are just locked and loaded with this standard dumbass answer of, you know, go back and, and, and pray. Mm-hmm. And they really don't have adequate resources to even be able to tease out what's going on. Because, you know, as I've talked to, like, our, the counselors that we have working for Whitefields, you know, I, like, I didn't understand this before we started having counselors here at Whitefields, is that there's a difference between a clinician and a counselor. And because there's a difference in mental health, right? There's things that say, schizophrenia, shit, I don't know anything about that. You need to go talk to somebody who's... <laughs> but, but bishops don't have any of this sort of stuff say, whoa, 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 that's way above my pay grade. And, and because they, they haven't been through any kind of psychological training, they're not even going to recognize when something is above their pay grade. They're not going to know when they're dealing with real solid mental health issues. Right. Sure. Somebody throws out this is the issue and you jump, especially I don't know if it's being a guy is I just want to jump in and give an answer as to what I think will fix the situation. But, yeah, it's it's and and I think there's a feeling that you want God to heal this before we try uh, sending you to LDS family services. Can can you imagine the amount of time that a female bishop would spend? With people trying to fix their problems, because us guys, it would be awesome. It's like, it's like five minutes, and then you're out. Well, you're fixed. Don't come back. But female bishop should be there. For it would weeks. be. Aw- I would go in and talk all the time. I really would. I would abuse it. So, so yeah. I mean, uh, these guys are just in way over their head, and I feel really bad because you, what? So what happens when a 15 year old girl? S- comes in and says she did this, that, or the other. I've been around the block a few times. I would have no idea what to say. I would just pack up and head to the, the head to a, um, a counselor's office. I just I wouldn't even want to touch that. And but not only are are these gentlemen hearing this stuff, they're mining for it. They're trying to get people to to confess it. And then once they have it, like what what do you what do you do with it? Um, and the problem is, I've pointed out this in the church before, and this is one of the things I don't like about religion. It's kind of clear, I don't like religion. When I was a young missionary, I hated giving blessings because they didn't work for me. And I thought I was broken. I thought there was something seriously wrong with me because I didn't hear the hoobie-jooby voices telling me what I was supposed to say to this person. Then I later concluded that there were no voices. Which was a nice conclusion, but then I came circle back and said, "Wait a minute, what about all those other guys?" So we have a we have a twofold problem. They're either hearing voices, which is problematic, <laughs> or they're not hearing voices, which is problematic, right? They're either full of shit or they're there's something wrong with them. And when we reverse that system, so oftentimes the problem this is the problem of a lie detector test. It only it only if it's working it's only finding people who think they're lying so if you're purely psychopathic and you believe whatever lie you're telling is the truth you pass the test so we 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 get these tests that weed out the middle and then the two extremes pass so you're getting people in the office of bishop most of them are good people who are trying to do their best um who are sort of in tune with their emotion, and that's what they're relying on. And then you have the psychopathic weirdos, because they're not gonna they're gonna get right through those filters. And these are the people you hear all the horror stories about. I'm convinced it's disproportionate. You know, you hear all these stories, it yeah. sounds like fifty percent of the bishops are crazy. No, it's five percent, but you're hearing those stories over and over again. Yeah, I, I would like to think that I was one of those normal people. I I I 
we have a, a couple of my fine ward members here from the from the last ward who left that are here to support. And uh, I, I like to think that we had a good relationship. Um, you, you tend to you try to think back. Did I do any of those things? Did I? What kind of bad advice did I, I give? And and you hope. I mean, I I hope that I I did a good job. Um, I just don't want to have hurt people because it's a prime situation for harming someone if you do the wrong Absolutely, thing. Absolutely, inadvertently. And I'll add, in the bishops that I had in the 32 years I went to church, with the exception of BYU, I'll put that aside, they were all very good. They Everything they, they ever said to me, um, they I never had any of them ask inappropriate questions. Um, I never had any of that ex- except BYU. Um, but outside of that, they were all really good. They were just they were just good people trying the best they could um, for for this community, and it, they were all wonderful people. I don't have anything negative to say about them in, in my experience, except for BYU. Um, <laughs> yeah, my, my experience has been the same actually. You know, I was chairman of the bishops' council for a year as oh, well, yeah. and during that time, the bishops that I associated with, admittedly now when I look back, they were all businessmen. You know they right. were, uh, but they were all genuinely good guys right. doing the best they could. Um, you know, and we would discuss not individuals, uh, but we would discuss generalities around a, a particular subject. And um, we nearly always came to the same consensus that the advice that was given was was appropriate and that was a way for to help that individual to heal, uh, to come back to Christ, and, and that kind of thing. Um, so I, I can't, from my own personal experience, think of a bishop that I've worked with who was a psycho, who you know, would have intentionally done something to harm somebody else. So I, I, I would agree that 5% ratio to you know, good to bad is probably correct. And I liked, I'm glad you bring up those meetings. I, I had kind of forgotten about those. Mm. Those were actually kind of cool. I, I enjoyed them because the stake wasn't involved in it. It was just the bishops, and they would usually bitch about what was going wrong. <laughs> they would talk bad about the stake and it kind of let off a little pressure because you could talk about these welfare issues and man i got a doozy going on and and talk about those situations and share that's where um i I felt like we were kind of in it together and and a brotherhood and uh very good guys yeah Yeah, well you you then get the the new bishop who just got called in that meeting yeah you want he's like you guys must must have had to deal with this you've been doing it for four or five how many of many years and so they're looking for that training at that point Yeah, in there's time. your training. And, and they're being trained by people who were never trained in the first place. Right. So it's kind of a circle of, of weirdness. <laughs> right. So let's talk about Natalie. Hi. Let's talk about some of the, let's talk about some of the impact. Um, we, you know, we, we hinted at the beginning that there is a, there's a heavy price that, that we extract from, from these men. Um, in terms of time, in terms of emotional resource, I just remember my father just coming home and just that my, my father's a very good man, but he was emotional, more so than the time he was emotionally absent for a lot of my, my, um, my youth because I realize now in the past, now I look back at the past, how much he had to give. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my father's an introvert. So, I can't imagine how difficult it was for him to, you know, open up to all, all these people in the way he, 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 I knew, I know he did because he was, he was a, he was a beloved bishop to use a, and, and the, and the people really respected and looked up to him. And I know he was given, he was putting his heart and soul on the line. 
and that cost that oftentimes is borne mm-hmm. by by the spouse, especially. And the irony is, the bishops are sort of sworn to secrecy, right? Well, that's. First of all, I have PTSD, so I don't remember any of it, so it's great. No, that's not true. Um, I hear that mushrooms will fix that. (laughs) (laughs) Might look into that. Um, The stake president, when he sat us down and extended the call, said to us, you actually, as a couple, have to make a decision whether you're going to share things with one another and both of you keep uh, members of the ward their information private, or you need to decide if you want to just keep it separate and we he's like you know it'd be good if you decided right away so i turned to my husband i said i actually don't want to know anything because these are my friends these are this is my community i actually don't want to know what their problems is are which was interesting because we made that decision and we stuck with it the whole time so it was great so a lot of times i could see that my husband was struggling and he would share enough that i would be able to understand a little bit of what was going on, but he beyond that, he didn't share any detail. And sometimes it was frustrating because a lot of ward members assumed I did know what was going on in their lives. If they were meeting with my husband privately, they assumed that he did share things. So one time I, I had a person come up to me, and about 20 minutes into our conversation, I had to stop her and say, I actually don't know what's going on in your life. I don't even know your, your name. I actually don't even know who you are. And she was like, oh, doesn't your husband? No, no, he he's respecting your privacy. So I'm sure that other bishops are different and and maybe not as many stake presidents are so flexible with letting the couple decide um but for the most part i really didn't know what was going on and for me it wasn't just the time that he was gone that was so difficult it was the time he was home and on the phone that i struggled with because it's hard enough to manage the children when you're away but it's even harder to keep them quiet and respectful of what you're doing on the phone while you're home. And there were days where he would come home at 10, 11 o'clock at night and then be in our like master bedroom closet, like underneath clothes, like sitting under a clothing rod because there was nowhere else to go where there weren't kids running around or, you know, he was trying to be respectful of my space. But at the same time, I'm like, what the hell are you doing in there? Like who, who has problems at two o'clock in the morning? But that was the reality of it. No, you know, now that you mentioned that you're Tickling my PTSD because this was before <laughs> this is before the age of cell phones when I was a so I remember that phone, the phone cord. ringing all the yeah. time and my voice apparently sounds a little bit like my father's <laughs> and I remember time and time and say no 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 you're talking to the wrong person <laughs> I did not want to hear it because they would yeah. be like Bishop blah 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 stop <laughs> and uh, now that you mention it my father would pack up and go to the office the church. Because that was the only place he had. had. And I do remember him now at 10, 30, 11 o'clock dragging his clothes on and going off to the to the church so he could talk to somebody on the phone. Right? Yeah. Gosh, yeah. I was a really bad bishop. I would answer the phone after nine o'clock. <laughs> you are smart. We, You're smart. And I talked with Katrina about this a little bit with, with the story that I shared with her because I talked about um, my husband serving as a bishop for, for part of that story. Um, but, no, I forgot what I was going to say. I'm sure it was really good. But it was good times. It was good times. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that I look back on, my mother, um, who is a dynamic, really intelligent person, and she was on a career path in the stake. She'd served in stake callings and had notoriety across the stake, you know, and been in the stake primary president, the stake relief society president. When my father was called to be a bishop, it ended her church career. Now, keep in mind, when you're heavy duty in the church, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, this is your life. 
So when my father was called as a bishop, it ended my mother's social connection outside of the ward. That's interesting because that, that wasn't the case for me. And I remember what I was going to say. We lived in a really, really needy ward. So I think the reason why my husband had to allot so much time was just because the need was so great. So maybe my, my other ward wards are also, different. Yeah. Um, but because we had such a young ward, there were a lot of people who just weren't interested or willing to serve the bigger calling. So I actually served in a lot of big callings while he was the bishop. Well, and, and when and, I heard you say that on the uh, voices, I, I wanted to say, yeah, that was my responsibility because I was the one giving the callings that weren't the stake ones. And even on the stake level, they would ask me, they would say, is this something your wife can do? And yeah, I, I feel bad a, about I this. I served on the state primary board. But my board thought at that time was that if I can't ask my wife to do it um, and be this example, how can I expect anyone else to do it? So I kind of I abused her in that way. No, actually, it was good because for a while I wasn't doing anything because we felt like, well, if you're doing this, I should just do nothing. But I felt so isolated. Huh. I felt like I have no friends. I have no interaction with other people because you're never home. So it was challenging in terms of the time that I had to give, but I actually found it beneficial because I was out making friends and I was out associating with other people. So, I mean, it sucked when we had to hire a babysitter because we both had to go to separate church callings. That's just just crazy town for anybody or any family or any couple. But at the same time, I did like that it got me out of the house. Hmm. So I think that impact can, can, can be enormous, that emotional impact. And who knows how many bishops and their 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 wives suffer and i'm not i'm not trying to fish out and get a comment here but <laughs> but but suffer in that relationship because they don't have the same amount of time together but they're going to suffer silently where does a bishop go when you know he, he and his wife they're, they're going to go to the stake president but that's your file leader right that's directly your supervisor and I don't think you want to do that. I mean, I think it's a show of weakness in a sense. I've given this, well, are the other eight, ten bishops, are they having issues? Um, probably you assume everyone is, is just going okay. So uh, you suck it up and... Um, I would agree with that. We white knuckle From both it. sides for the most part, yeah, you just uh, bury it. You really do. Absolutely, yeah. There's, yeah. Th- there's no backing off the calling and... You know, if if you're suffering in that way, it's because you're not in tune with the spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, because the spirit will guide and direct you through all these this adversity, and if you don't feel like you have the strength to to do all the the work that's being given to you, it's because you're just not in tune with the spirit. So you pray harder, you get in tune with the spirit, you make a trip to the temple more regularly, and you come back and you're fired up and you're ready to go again. And you just, I, I recognize it now, but at the time I didn't. But I just buried it. I just buried it and just mm-hmm. carried on, you know. And from my perspective, you're bearing some really hard stuff, resentment and anxiety mm-hmm. and jealousy because here's your spouse on the phone with some woman fixing all of her problems and it's like, what about these problems right here? Yeah, because let, let's underline that, you know, when we talk about the roles of responsibility of a bishop, there's an irony in that if, if, a, if a man has the priesthood, he automatically gets escalated to the stake president and to the high council. But the bishop has to deal individually with all these 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 issues that the women bring in, and I, I think just because of the nature of that, it's going to lopside the bishop to dealing with um, a lot of um, women who are, frankly, in the kind of situations that lead to infidelity in the first place. I have no idea what the infidelity rate for for sitting bishops is. 
I'm sure it's a lot higher than we would all suspect. Well, maybe not you guys. You're all cynical bastards. But what the, <laughs> what the people in the church, I'm sure it's a lot higher than what, what people would, would assume because you're yeah. in this emotionally vulnerable situation behind closed doors talking about the most personal, intimate details. Well, and everybody knows that, or you're told in the church, the way that you start to have infidelity is you start first to console with somebody who has a, a listening ear maybe it's a coworker, and and she she's like oh that's too bad and she's nice and so you do that and i did see that as a bishop where somebody would come in and talk poorly about their husband and uh there was at least one instance where i knew that she was fishing and mm-hmm. it was she kept uh, she was about to leave the area and i really knew when she was saying she was just saying some leading things like and just leaving it for me to i just had to say that one thing uh-huh. and that gap would have been bridged and and luckily i didn't i was i just left it hanging and and uh, she went that sounded bad um, I just, I just. The door's still open. The door is still open. I, but uh, that one rolled by. But looking back on it, that was certainly an opportunity. And when I told Nat about that one later on in life, it didn't make her happy. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't angry, but I was, I, I, I was sympathetic for the situation. And it's frustrating because I get it. I have a really close friend that I knew he was counseling. And she wasn't making advances towards him, but she was in this really difficult, challenging marriage where someone was treating her poorly. And here was someone who was listening and saying all the right things and giving her emotionally what she needed. So it's just kind of this natural path to be drawn to people that make you feel good about yourself. So you're just kind of setting yourself up for failure a little bit because these people are naturally going, oh, well, you get me. You understand what I'm going through. So in, in our ward, it was very different. The bishop's office had a glass pane in it, so people could see in. I love that. That's and, a good idea. And, um, uh, like, was it frosted? Like uh, frosted no, glass? You no, could just was, see the girls it had, crying? It had, like a, it had like a crisscross of wire mesh oh, in it, okay. but you could see through it. Um, but uh, that, for me, was a good that's, sa- safety and protection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I never met anybody at the chapel on my own. My executive secretary was always there. I think that's or, a rule, Or we do it on the night when yeah. it was... Uh, mutual activity or something like that so lots of people around uh, I, again no training for that but for me I just thought this is a great a great opportunity for somebody to do exactly as you just said exactly and, and so uh, the safety aspect of it is you know you've got somebody else in the corridor standing outside the door and at any point they could look through so yeah I mean I, they, the, the executive secretary may have seen women crying may have seen guys crying for all I know but um, but, but there was always somebody with a watchful eye, if you like. I saw years and years ago, um, I was watching the late show, David Letterman's show, and Johnny Carson appeared on it. And Johnny comes out, and he sits down, and then he takes this prop, and he folds out a desk and puts it in, <laughs> in front of him, you know, because Carson was used to having the desk. So he wasn't going to talk to... Uh, he wasn't going to talk to David Letterman without a desk in front of him because the desk is a symbol of authority, right? Yeah. And so for a lot of years, I, I looked at that and I would make fun of the fact that those bishops and those stake presidents sit behind these big desks. That was when I was in my 30s. Now I'm in my 40s and I realized looking back that those desks were put strategically to keep people away from the bishop physically, Right. And because, you know, we always look at this as saying, hey, you know, the people coming in and visiting the bishop are in a vulnerable situation. 
Absolutely true. I don't want to discount that. But the bishops themselves are in a very vulnerable situation in terms of if, if, you, if, if, if anybody says anything about the bishop coming out of that room, the bishop, I've joked about this in the podcast, but it's really scary that your reputation can get shot in a, in a, in a second. And I don't mean this to diminish those who are really victimized by priesthood authority. That happens all the time. But as, as a priesthood authority, with no backing, no training, no nothing, you're in an extremely vulnerable position, and you're talking to some people who are fucking nuts. Um, and, and there are professional people, and you, you guys know from being bishops, um, there are people who professionally scam bishops around. They just go from ward to ward to ward to ward, and they know how to play the system. And, and man, I, the whole thing scares the hell out of me. I don't know how the church even does it. Um, I guess it's just entrenched, and the guys running the church—it's still 1968 for them. Um, and, and but the, everybody else must look and say, "Oh my God, how do you guys even even do that?" And that's why Curtin and McConkie is such a big lawyer for them. <laughs> um, Built on sex. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, in terms of we've talked about a lot of the negative things. The best calling in the Mormon Church is a former bishop. <laughs> because everybody still calls you bishop you have an elevated high status in the church right yeah yeah it's, and then you but you don't have to do anything no they they let you sit unless you got called how many times was it three times you were a bishop no i was, I was, I was on a bishopric for three times but only bishop for once but <laughs> but as soon as i was released yeah. as a bishop i got called onto the high council so see exactly and that's the path i feel bad for those guys that start off as executive secretary then mm. counselor then that's a lot of years what you want to do is you want to be bishop first <laughs> And then, and then leave the church. And then <laughs> that's what you Check first. You, but uh, good job. Yeah, if you're doing it, do that, and then your time is cut a little short. But yeah, you do have a certain celebrity, I guess, Mormon celebrity. It came back to bite us in the butt a little bit, though. And I, I talked about this with Katrine. And okay, so we had all these great friends, and and then he got called as bishop, and then we had no time for friends, and then he got released, and we're like, yay, we get to be have friends again and have a social life. And people were like, ooh, but you know our dirt. So for us, it was kind of a problem because people were, were anxious about hanging out with us. Socially, they don't well, want to well, Even if it wasn't that, uh, this is every, you know, when you get a, a, a big promotion at work, yeah. you should have a mentor that tells you, um, this is the, the deep the secret, is you'll lose all your friends. Once you become the boss, True. you are no longer equal with people. So the re- respect is definitely still there. The respect is there, but yeah. the intimacy yeah. of, of being friendships and being on the same, but you are forevermore going to be bishop and the bishop's wife yeah. um, for the rest of your life. And that gives you a certain status and gravitas, but you're not necessarily um, going to be looked at as, as a peer. You're not I, and I recognize that some people probably love that, but for us, we didn't. We moved. A year later, we moved. We said, this is dumb. People don't want to be socially interact with us, not, not on the, at the level that we wanted them to. So we ended up moving because we just didn't feel like we were comfortable in our own home anymore. Well, I think there are a lot of eyes. This is the the paradox of the stake presence kid and the bishop's kid. The people know you are the bishop's kid. So as a kid, especially if you're an awkward 14 or 15-year-old, just wants to sink in the back anyway, and you have people that you don't even know who will come up to you and identify you as... uh, I remember I was at band camp or something like that. 
It's not as great as the movies make it sound. <laughs> and, um, and some guy, some chaperone came up to me and said something about me being Bishop Larson's son. And I just thought it, I found it kind of spooky and disturbing. It was, it was sort of creepy, you know? <laughs> like, I don't know who this guy is, and, but the, the subtext was clear. I'm watching. I'm watching you. Right. You know, I know who you are. Um, and and I think I think that pressure on bishops, on bishops' wives, on bishop kids, um, can, can be a, a lot. And I think there's a lot of kids who just say fuck it and, and just just run out because their 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 mothers are oftentimes very stressed because they basically have to function as single parents. Yeah. Their fathers have all this other shit that's been piled on them. There's an expectation that they're of some higher order of righteousness, and it's just a lot of pressure to put on people. I have I have a friend and he was uh, we were chatting back and forth and he was worried about uh, he was worried about his patriarchal blessing and some of the things that he felt came true and so it was like well if those things just just doing a little uh, blessings math and I said hey here's my patriarchal blessing why don't you why don't you take it and I'll take yours and we'll just see we'll check off and see how many actually apply to us as well. And, and so we'll figure this out. So that's just to, to say that I was reading through it recently. I could have just said that, but we were, <laughs> I was reading through it and it said that it said I would be called as a judge in Israel. So a bishop, Hey, bingo church is true. Uh, but the other thing it said was that my family would not suffer for the time that I served in church callings. That, I, that was a big fat lie. I, <laughs> I, I really, I, I, I think that's one of the biggest lies that's told is, is, is that you almost tell yourself to make it through that period of time is that my family will be blessed for this. Even though my daughter, who's young and doesn't see me, runs away from me and says she doesn't like me because I'm never home, it's blessing my family. And even though my wife and I are having uh, just difficulties with each other. That's a blessing. And so your mind is scrambling. What is the blessing? And trying to, to make it fit because this patriarchal blessing said it. But I, I think, and people will walk up. I remember seeing people walk up to Nat and say, oh, you're, you're going to be so blessed. Or you must be so blessed for what you're doing. And I, I that drove her of, crazy. I punched a lot of people in the face. <laughs> no, it was hard. Yeah, because I'm like, yeah, it's so great. We're so blessed. But yeah, but you it was can't hard. admit that. Man, this is a hard thing. Yeah. And our youngest was born while he was serving as bishop. And I think she was three or two or no, two or three when he was released. And they just had no relationship. She's like, he was home. And she's like, who is this guy? And it took years for them to mend that. And I just kept thinking, this actually isn't what I want. This isn't the future I want, is to keep doing this again and again and have our kids not know who you are. If, if a believing bishop was to hear this and, and listen to it, I, I would just say that, that really you do have the freedom to make your schedule. You really do have the freedom to run it like you want, like a business and to delegate it. And what you just have to do is say, any of the guilt that the state presidency is going to lay on me um, for this, uh, it, my family should be number one. Unfortunately, your family comes about number three or four on the list. It's just leftovers at that point. I and, and I think that 
bishops should take a little bigger stand and, and draw a line and say, this is what I do, and these are my office hours, and that's it. And you mentioned that towards the end of your service that you you did do that better. But it's important to also recognize from the wife's perspective that the isolation is still there, the sadness and the jealousy and anxiety and anger. Those things are still there. Well, and I, I think... You know, you're making a point that we had before. Is there's no training? Yeah, you can tell the difference between a bishop in his fifth year and a bishop in his first year. Oh, totally. And yeah. and because they 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 do eventually figure this out. And yeah. and then we we move them on. And and the the church is a big machine. It's it's what it's really trying to do is get the next level of leadership. And they track people this way. So they're looking at the best of the best, and then those guys move up. You know, the average bishop serves five years. Stake has average of ten to twelve wards. So uh, a stake president usually serves 10, and most often a stake president will have served as a counselor. So, so usually by the time a stake president is going to serve 20 years in that position. So you're grinding up. You know, so in this same 20-year period, how many bishops are you going to have? You're going to have like 50 bishops who serve. And of those, two or three will be picked for stake president. And then some of the bishops are going to go on and be mission presidents. A lot of the stake presidents are. And then we're grinding up and grinding up and grinding up. I don't mean to belabor a point I keep making, but people say all the time, oh, they can't believe. They can't not believe because they're selected for these people who go through this this, um absolute pressure cooker for 30 years and they survive they come out on the top they're the assholes in chief and they and they know how to run this stuff because and you can see i i have this game i play it's really fun especially at big companies in utah it's it's called i identify the bishops and the stake presidents stake presidents are easy stake presidents are easy because they drive camrys well, well, well you'll, you'll, you'll have a guy who's like a tech writer who's acting like he's a fucking corporate executive. Like he's walking around like he needs a key to the executive bathroom. You're like, what is this guy? He's just a – that's a stake president because they get used to really being treated kind of like um, the, 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 the high-level folks. Bishops, there's two types. There's the type that look like they're going through a divorce all the time. <laughs> they just are always sad and always beat down and staring at the walls. And that's a bishop. And then there's the other bishops who, yeah, they, 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 they walk around with a little spring in their step. And, <laughs> and oftentimes, when you, if, if, you're, if you're not from Utah, you're not from Mormon culture, when you get into a company dealing with Utah people, if there's somebody who's not acting appropriate to their position, they're, they're probably either a bishop or a stake president. Um, but it's 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 a it's a tough thing, man. And I I am um, I don't know what to. I, it's I I hats off to you guys. It was it's it's tough. <laughs> I'm glad I dodged that bullet. It, it, the thing is, you know, it's hard to get out of it. It really is. That indoctrination, you know, starts on day one when you call as a bishop. And there there are numerous things during for me during the six years that just validated the fact that I was a bishop and therefore. God was pleased with me, and I just carried on doing the work, and certain events occurred that, you know, the ward grew in numbers, we got the baptisms we needed, and all that kind of stuff, and you validated all the way along that this is true, that you are doing the right thing, and so at no point during that six years did I ever doubt that there was anything wrong with anything I was doing, and that the state president wasn't guided by God in everything he told me that we should be doing as well. And I would like to add to that that there is a lot of, you do... I would come into a night feeling crappy and not wanting to do it, and then I would leave the night feeling great. Every time, yeah. Every time. Every and that's time. and that's kind of what you come back mm-hmm. for. It's kind of like when people say they go to the temple, and I felt like crap, and then, and then I felt good. 
I, I, I don't know exactly what to put that on other than there is power in the people. And it is very fantastic to talk with these people and to do the actual things that are like mourn with those that mourn. And those things are very uplifting. And those are the things that keep you going and keep on trucking along is, is uh, the members are great. I mean, how, do you, how often would somebody get the chance to talk with that many interesting people and, and learn about their lives? That was, for me, the best part of it. Well, you're basically pract- you're, you're acting as a therapist without a license is what you're doing. <laughs> and, and, and there's plenty of life coaches out there, right? And, and I think I, we've talked about that that oftentimes it's the person who has it most together in the ward is going to be selected as, as the bishop. Mm. So, so just from life experience, I think for the most part, most bishops are doing a, a sort of net positive in terms of their individual interaction with other people. And to be able to sell redemption, that's a pretty heady drug. <laughs> to have somebody come in feeling terrible and to be able to tell them something that they can walk you have a tool that no therapist has you can say you're better and somebody will believe it right that's pretty that's powerful that's true stuff. yeah you have the power to to basically forgive yeah. you're you're speaking for the lord absolutely and you believe it as and well you, and everybody and believes believe it. it yeah you yeah. know I would certainly believe Philip if I, he was my bishop <laughs> and he had that accent going. I would do whatever he said. It would be awesome. Yeah. All right. But that, so, well, that's scary as well. You know, when bishops, if, if we got the wrong end of the scale of bishops here, telling people to do certain things, that is real scary. Yeah. That's your next one. Get some awful, awful bishops. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It goes bad. And if you, they, the, Point of the mountain is full of bishops down there, freezy for fraud cases, and and you know that's it, when it goes bad. There's there's very few checks and balances on the system, and that that's really the, the the hard part about it is if you have a bad bishop and he's not done anything criminal, what what's your recourse? You go talk to the stake president, but stake president oftentimes the biggest douche in the stake, right? So, and then what do you do? You write a letter to the church? Well, the church will tell you they're going to send it right back to the stake president. You're done. You have no recourse. And that's, that's the real scary the thing. The thing is, the person you're complaining about is the person who gets your letter ultimately right, right. Yeah. to answer to it. And then what's the, that bishop going to do for you then? Yeah, yeah. I saw, even as a clerk, as a, as a clerk, that things that were escalated to the stake president, they would just kick down to the bishop back again. And we would talk about it openly in the, in the, <laughs> in the bishopric meeting, you know? Um, because uh, when, when, when you're labeling people as sinners, it's easy to see everybody who's not towing the line as defective, as broken. And, and, and I think for people who go south on this, who people who are defective bishops, it's easy to start just painting everybody as being... Sinners, and they don't have the inspiration that I have, and yikes, that's scary. I did pull that out once. We were in a, a meeting talking about uh, 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 the things you argue about, scouting, and and this uh, guy who is serving as the the scout leader. He and I were getting started to get into this uh, two sided. We were arguing, basically pretty strong, and the ward council is just kind of watching this happen, wishing they could leave the room. <laughs> and it kept escalating and escalating. And at one point, this was probably my, my most shameful moment, I said, 
and he said, well, why do we have to do this? And, and it was like, because I'm the bishop. And, and I pulled that out. And, uh, man, that's douchey. And but, but, but that's your ace card. When, it when, is when, your when ace everything card. else fails, that was, that's the ace card. Right. And we became good friends after that because guys can fight and then be friends. So it was just fine. But, but I did feel like this. At, at that point, it was the power play. Mm. I, I recall, and I don't recall what the situation was, but I got in a tight spot one time with somebody who was arguing a point with me. And I didn't have an answer, and you know, there was nothing coming from above. And then I just happened to remember there was something in the blue book. I opened the blue book and I thrust it in front of his face. I said, "There it is, black and white." End of story. And then we and I walked out the room. <laughs> <laughs> Threw the book down. Bam. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'm I'm glad you're both here. When I first came out of the church, uh, former bishops were a rare breed, and now they're all over the place. Um, um, I do I do think it's really rare, and I think this is telling. You you will find very few people from bishops on up who leave the church while they're in their calling. And we did we did um, hint on this a little bit, which will be one of the strategies. It is one of the strategies of the church to keep you as busy as possible to keep you as entangled in this and give you sort of accolades. Church does it to everybody. You're a choice generation. You're chosen. Um, you're, you know, you're white and delightsome, that there's those who are in the preexistence who weren't um, worthy of this sort of stuff, that um, you know, you've proven valiant where half the missionaries fell away, but you're still here. And this, this stuff, this constant accolade will, will be there to try to rope people in. And sometimes I think, as, as, as Bob McHugh pointed out years ago, that you know, he said, if I, they'd never released me, if they'd moved me to another calling, I probably would have never left the church. And because you're so busy, you just don't have time to think about these things. I've, I've referenced this before, but it's, it's great. It's from Spencer Kimball's biography by his son. Um, he talks about how amazed he was when he went into the 12 that he thought now will be this time of spirituality, but they just kept him running literally from dawn until dusk. And he didn't have any time to read or to think. And he would write his, his conference talks, you know, on airplanes and on trains and, you know, and, and that's the way we do it. We want to keep you from ever thinking about this stuff. Well, you know, the other thing as well is you're told repeatedly that you are the father of the ward. So therefore, all these folks that you sit looking at every Sunday are relying on you to keep doing what you're doing. And so at that point, even if you found out stuff that was wrong about the church, I don't know that it would have any effect on you because these folks' lives are in your hands. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you just don't want to walk. As a father, you don't want to walk away from your kids, and that's the way you look at the, the ward. I'm not just going to give this up and walk away, even, even if I'm not sure if, if everything's true. Hey, we've got the millennium. Then I'll know it's all true. <laughs> All right. Well, I feel exhausted again. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks, guys, for coming on and sh- sharing your experience. Uh, go buy your local bishop a beer or something. <laughs> My box of wine would have helped so much at the end of the day. It, it would have, it really it, it, indeed. Um, and hopefully the church, you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't give advice. Start training people. God, you got so much money. Fly them out here. You've got 18 MTCs around the world. You can do, um, you know, two days worth of bishop training once every quarter and, you know, give them basics of when they escalate, when they don't escalate and and how to read stuff. Set up a mentoring program. Hell's bells, guys. This is like standard stuff. Um, uh, It's not hard. Go get go down to Barnes Noble and get like the management for dummies book. Um, and and just just quit, drop the farce, and realize that you're a company and you're you're training your frontline managers. 
All right. Well, uh, thanks to our lovely um, studio audience and for our wonderful panel. And um, good night, everybody. is a production of the Whitefields Educational Foundation. Visit us online at whitefieldseducational.org to find more about our current initiatives. Mormon Expressions is recorded live in downtown Salt Lake on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. If you're in the area, please come join us in the studio. Hey.